Lauren. Mike. Can you set a timer for 12 minutes? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Is that really the best use of my time? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought I was talking to my Google Assistant. You do have an assistant on your Pixel phone there, don't you? Yeah, and that's all I use it for, setting timers. Just timers. Pretty much. Alarms? Sometimes. What's the weather? Never. Do you ever call it Siri by accident? Never. That's probably better. (laughs) Well, the assistant's getting much better. This is what we hear. And we heard about that today, this week, at Google I.O., along with a bunch of other things. Yeah, like a lot of stuff. And we're going to talk about all of it on this week's show. Let's do it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I'm Michael Calori. I'm a senior editor at Wired. And I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired. We are also joined this week by Wired Reviews editor Julian Chokatu. Julian, welcome back to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. Of course. It is springtime. So you know what that means. It's developer conference season. Hooray. Woohoo. This week, Google is holding its annual I.O. conference. It's a two-day-long virtual gathering, but the main thing we care about is the keynote address on the first day. It's when Google typically announces a whole bunch of new software and sometimes some hardware. And announce they did. Mm -hmm. There are three new Pixel phones coming, a tablet, some new wireless earbuds, and at long last, a Google-branded smartwatch called the Pixel Watch. Google also showed off some Android updates and new features for its web tools like Search and the G Suite. And we'll talk about the software later in the show. But first, I want to ask Julian about the hardware announcements. So let's see, where should we start? The watch? I kind of want to talk about the watch first. Yeah, I mean, I've been hearing about a Pixel Watch for about six years. I think when they first launched the original Pixel, everyone was like, oh, they're going to make a watch, right? And every (laughs) year since then, it's just been a continuous, like, will they, won't they kind of thing. And now we're finally here and it's finally happening. Uh, Pixel Watch is a round watch, which, in my opinion, is the superior form for a watch. Amen. He just threw bombs on this show. Yeah. Are we going to get to that? Go ahead. Go (laughs) ahead, Julian. Please continue. Say more. It's running the new Wear OS 3 that they launched last year. So it's a redesigned operating system that Google has been uh, sort of tweaking lightly over the past seven, eight years, something like that. Um, But basically, it's going to have Fitbit support uh, because Fitbit is now a Google company. So there's a lot of Fitbit uh, apps and a lot of that data tracking is going to be handled by Fitbit and Google Fit, which is kind of confusing. And it just kind of looks pretty uh, round and has customizable straps, though I think they're proprietary. They didn't confirm that. Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't really know that many other details because they were pretty light on it. And because this product is technically coming out later this fall alongside the Pixel 7 Pro, which we can talk about as well, Um, but uh, that's happening. And the only other things that we know is that there is no iOS support, which is very weird. So this will only work with Android phones. And my head is just exploding right now. Oh, please continue. No, please keep going. And the nice thing is that Google has actually decided to make its apps available for its own freaking watch finally. So you finally get a Google Home app, for example, so you can actually control uh, all your smart lights on your watch, which is kind of crazy that they have not had a Google Home app for their Wear OS operating system these past few years. But we're finally going to see more first-party Google apps on there. And so that's kind of exciting if you are a Pixel user or just a general Android and Google Assistant user. So Google acquired Fitbit, I guess it was a couple years ago now. 
It was probably about three years ago that they announced it, but it took about a year for the deal to go through. Um, Fitbit, prior to that, at some point had acquired Pebble. A lot of people listening will probably remember the adorable Pebble smartwatch. Um, I like to call that a wearables turducken. Because it's like Google buying Fitbit, which bought Pebble. It's all just nested in this little thing on our wrists now. Um, but how much of this Pixel Watch, Julian, is going to have Fitbit's DNA in it? Well, the words that they used were that Fitbit would be imbued throughout the watch. Oh, imbued. <laughs> One of our favorite wow. words. Wow. That must have been a millennial English major who wrote that for Google. <laughs> but the weird part is uh, because the Fitbit deal, one of the agreements that Google had to make was that they had to keep Fitbit data separate from Google data. So what they said is that the Fitbit app on this watch will collect data and it'll be sent to Fitbit and it will be kept isolated from Google's other data that it's collecting on the watch. So I'm not sure how that's going to work. It's especially weird because there will be Google Fit on the app as well. So I guess you can kind of choose if you want to go the route of Fitbit or if you want to go the route of Google Fit, but it's going to be kind of a, a weird thing that you just have to deal with and figure out which one you want to use. And I guess at some point, maybe they'll merge it, but it also is pretty common with uh, Google to see two of everything. So maybe that's just what this is. Why the round face? Why? Hey, buddy. Why the round face? <laughs> hey, buddy. <laughs> right. It would work better if it was oblong because then I could ask why the long face. That's right. But really, why? why? Because watches are meant to be round. This is something that we have known no. for a long time. Have there you ever are... seen a tank watch? Yeah, sure. Like a Cartier yes. watch. There are plenty of watches that are that are rectangular or Oh, square. there's another one um, that's really popular. It's called- um, Well, it doesn't matter. It's called the it's... Apple Watch. Right. Right, right. <laughs> right. The best-selling watch in the world. Right. But those, those watches are imperfect uh, because watches are meant to be round. The ideal, objectively, scientifically accurate shape for a watch is a round watch. I'm with Julian on this Why? Because <laughs> the hands, the hands go around. And you want the equal distance between the ends of the hands and the outside of the case of the watch at all times. Okay, I appreciate this mini lesson in horology, but we're talking about smart watches. <laughs> That's what it's called, right? So you're saying like if it's just if it's just like an interactive tap tap swipe swipe kind of screen, it should be the same shape as all the other screens that we use, like no, our phones I'm, and tablets. Okay, so in the abstract, I don't believe that smartwatches are or should be just mini smartphones on your wrist. I think that was the big question, especially when the Apple Watch came out about seven years ago at this point. Is this just going to be a smartphone on your wrist? And I actually do think that they have proven, um, they've proved themselves as, as a device that's helpful in many other ways and kind of exist on their own and run their own operating systems and have their own apps or micro apps or whatnot. But that said, a lot of app developers are developing apps for the rectangular slabs that we use in our day-to-day -day lives, whether that's a tablet or a smartphone. And so in app development, when you're designing these things in certain ways, like there, there's actually, I think that there's a technical case for why having a square smartwatch might serve apps better than a round smartwatch. And I've seen some smartwatch makers do cool things with round faces. Like there was a Samsung watch where you would actually like run your your fingers along the round, like the edges of the round bezel. Yeah. And that became an interaction method for while you're using it. Yeah. Right. And I, by the way, I am wearing a round watch right now. As we tape this, I'm wearing a, gar a Garmin that I love. But a I can, I consider this like a dumb smartwatch. It's like a, it's a sport smartwatch. It's not a smart, it doesn't even have a touch screen. Yeah. It doesn't have a touch screen. Maybe it's, that's the thing, the touch screen. Maybe it should be square. I'm of the opinion that 
for me, uh, a smartwatch will always be sort of like a supplementary device. Uh, and so I prefer its design looking a particular way and, and making me feel a particular way when I look at it like a traditional watch where compared to just more focusing on the utility of that screen. So for me, I would rather it be round and look pretty and then give me some extra additional help uh, every now and then if I can turn off my lights from my watch, for example, versus packing a lot of data into the perfect size and shape of a screen just because it is more functional, I suppose. I will say that it like that that last point is exactly I'm with you on that. As long as it works flawlessly, I really don't care what shape it is. Exactly. <laughs> All right. I think that's the bigger problem is getting it to work. <laughs> I'm out, I'm outnumbered here, but that's okay. <laughs> exactly, we can we can agree sure. to disagree on this podcast. Yes, we can. It's very that's civil. Okay. Julian, will Fitbit continue to exist? That is an interesting question because obviously they're leveraging so much of Fitbit's brand name and their expertise and their tracking data here. Um, but they also last year announced that Fitbit will be coming out with a premium Wear OS smartwatch back when they were initially announcing Wear OS 3. So we can pre presumably we can expect a Fitbit watch with Wear OS, I think, later this year that's going to compete with uh, the Pixel watch. So it's kind of a weird uh, situation. Again, <laughs> two of everything with Google. Um, maybe that's what this is. But, um, you know, maybe it's just two different markets, two different audiences. And uh, it's going to be interesting how that goes. Uh, well, we don't have time to go deep on everything, but we should mention uh, that there were three phones announced. The Pixel 6a, which is going to be coming out in July for $450. And then they also teased the Pixel 7 and the Pixel 7 Pro, which are coming out in possibly September or October, which is usually when the new high-end Pixel phones come out. Um, Julian, what is interesting about these phones? Well, we don't really know much about the Pixel 7 series other than they have a similar design, um, a little more metal, uh, and they are going to be running the second generation Tensor chip, which was a given. Um, but what is more interesting about the Pixel 6a is that, you know, we thought that Google might rely on Qualcomm mid-range sensors for their cheaper phone because it's probably more cost-effective that way. But it turns out, nope, they're just going to put the same Tensor chip that's in their flagship phones into the 6a, so you get this you know, flagship level of performance for $450, all the same software and AI features. And the only things that you're really going to sacrifice on are it's a smaller screen, um, the camera sensors aren't going to be as fancy or new, um, but otherwise, you know, it, you're getting the same types of five, 5G coverage, so that's sub six millimeter wave, which is extremely rare at this price. Um, and yeah, OLED, you know, this will have broader retail support over the uh, Pixel 5a. So you can actually buy it from more than other one store, basically, and, uh, in uh, several countries as well, where the Pixel 5a, they only sold it in the US and Japan. So, um, you know, overall, I think it's kind of a crazy deal. Uh, and kind of one of those Apple moves, you know, Apple has the iPhone SE that it sells with the same A13 chip that's inside the uh, iPhone 13 series. Sorry, A15. I'm, I'm, I'm completely at a loss as to what <laughs> A8 series number we're at, but I think it's A15 now. I, I, I think so. Yeah. So Apple has the iPhone SE that runs the uh, same processor that's in the iPhone 13 series, which is, you know, 
pretty cool that you can get the same level of power for a much lower price. And that's pretty much exactly what Google has done here. Uh, and honestly, I don't see that many other companies being able to do that right now. So, you know, there was also a tablet tease today. There were some crazy translation glasses, some live translation AR glasses uh, teased today. Uh, we know that there are Pixel Buds Pro coming, which are, you know, like Pixel Buds that are $200 and have a few more features, active noise canceling, really crazy battery life. Lauren, there was so much hardware today at I.O. Why is Google showing us all of this stuff now? Yeah, this is a good question. And Google has sort of employed this interesting strategy around product announcements in recent years. It has started to increasingly leak or tease its own hardware before it is actually ready to announce it or actually ready to ship it. And so this is, I think, one of the longest lead times we've seen for a smartphone in a really long time. Like the fact that they're saying, I'm going to guess around five months from now in October, just going to guess, you'll see the Pixel 7 and the Pixel 7 Pro. They're just really putting it out there, right? So that whole idea of like the intrigue and the secrets around the product, the typical product release cadence um, is sort of eliminated. And part of that may be because Google has to manage expectations. Um, we've seen a lot of shipments of products uh, disrupted by the pandemic and supply chain challenges over the past couple of years. Um, it could be partly because um, Google just kind of wants to, they realize they have a relatively small market share in all of these products, whether it's um, smartphones, which they, you know they only sell probably a few million of relative to Apple's phones. But yeah, their own smartphones, their own tablets, this new Pixel Watch, like they're going to have mere slivers of the market share, right? And so part of this must be if they can just sort of lodge themselves into consumers' brains as people are starting to make purchasing decisions come August, September, October, that maybe they just have a chance of grabbing some of that share. Well, I guess we should thank Google for giving us one of the busiest weeks in recent memory <laughs> as journalists <laughs> who cover this stuff. <laughs> Um, all right, well, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about all the software announcements. Everyone is talking about hardware this year, but I.O. is still primarily a software conference. And Google did lay out a bunch of new updates for Android and for its web services. For example, the Google Assistant, which lives in phones, smart displays, and smart speakers. It got a little bit smarter with the addition of some natural language features. Now, Lauren, let's start with this because you got to talk to some Googlers about uh, the, the new changes coming to Assistant. Tell us about them. That's right. Last week, I went down to the Valley, uh, Silicon Valley, that is, and I met with Sissy Shao, who is the relatively new head of Google Assistant. She's, she's managing Assistant, and she's promising that it's getting smarter. Because when you think about something like Google Assistant, which is the thing where, by the way, I'm going to apologize in advance because for the, those of you listening, this is the part of our podcast where we may start triggering some of the <laughs> smart devices or your your Google Pixel phone sitting around. Yes, trigger warning. Um, because I'm, I'll say, hey, G, as much as I can remember to. Okay, so so a lot of people are used to using, hey, G, right, to ask it a question. And, and that usage has gone up. A couple of years ago, Google claimed that there were 500 million monthly users who would access Google Assistant in some way. And now that's gone up to 700 million users per month. Um, but the commands and the queries that people are asking aren't generally super varied or complex. The dynamic is still very much, I have this one question, you are the assistant, answer the question. I mean, a lot of us do the same, like Mike, you mentioned this earlier in the show, we do the same queries over and over again. Yeah. You ask it to set a timer. My big thing, I have a Google Nest Hub in my bedroom and I, every day or night, I say, Hey, Google, 
Sorry, I just did it to all of you. Hey, G, play ocean sounds. That's it. That's exactly, that's the only thing that I do. Play ocean sounds. So you're saying that uh, basically Google is making it easier for the devices to get to know you and know your habits. And that makes it easier for them to understand what you mean when you ask that question at the same time as, as you asked it yesterday in the same tone that you asked it yesterday. Right. But it's a, it's a bit of a chicken and an egg problem because because they want consumers to start asking more complex questions and having almost conversations with the assistant. But uh-huh. consumers don't know it's there <laughs> until they like roll it out and demonstrate that it works. And so that was part of it today for Google to say, hey, this assistant actually is getting much more conversational. You can start to say things like, um, or take really awkward pauses the way that we do when we're talking to each other or taping a podcast. I would be afraid if someone tallied up all the ums that we say on this podcast, but there's a lot of ums. It's, it's just the, the way that we speak to each other. And so Google is designing its assistant now to be able to recognize that. Or you could say something like, um, um, um. you could say something <laughs> like, or, you know, hey, G, order the pizza that I ordered last Friday night. And it yeah. might have a recollection of that and understand it. Or you could say something like, this is another example they gave. Hey, Google, uh, play that song by um, Florence. And um, um, and you sort of trail off. And it understands that you mean Florence and the Machine. And it's probably one of the most popular songs or a song that you've listened to before. So there's, there's um, yeah, they're trying to make it more intelligent in these little ways that make it so you can just start talking to it like it's a, like it's not exactly a human, but a thing with human affects, human capabilities. I think the coolest thing was that example with the um that they showed, you know, when you pause, because I think I find myself at, I, I have a dog, so I'm always asking, you know, can I feed it this? Can I feed it that? Like all these different types of questions like that. And and most of the time, or sometimes I'll just pause because I'm thinking of what I wanted to ask. And, you know, usually it starts talking, thinking I've finished my query. And then it's just me shouting at it saying, please stop, no, like, <laughs> cancel, you know, because like <laughs> one of the many Google homes will go live. Uh, so now, you know, be, having it be able to actually detect that I, I paused, didn't quite finish my query uh, is kind of interesting. And um, my, but my biggest issue is, you know, usually they announce all these features and you're like, that's awesome. I'm going to forget how to use it or just completely forget that it exists because it takes so long for them to really become like commonplace features that uh, the average person, because like, you know, I will train myself to probably utilize some of these new things, but you know, my partner probably doesn't care enough or won't really know it. And so there's always usually a long time for them to really uh, sort of make use of it um, when it's deployed in, in for, for normal people. I feel like it's the same thing with features that are not voice features. You know, phones are already so complex. And every time you introduce new features, you have to like hide the old complexity in new places to make room for the new complexities. Do you know what I mean? What's an example of that? Well, it's just, just look at your phone now because over the last, you know, 10 years, things have been added to the phone and new features keep being added and they don't like drop old features when they add new ones, right? They just make the list of, like the settings list just gets longer and longer and longer with every release. One thing that a voice assistant is actually kind of helpful for is just like finding things on your phone, you know, like turning on the flashlight or, uh, you know, starting a song just because like you don't know where it lives. You just want to ask for it. And like that is actually something that I think 
voice assistants are truly useful for right. is helping us solve the problem of our phones have grown too feature rich. Right. There's there's this <laughs> promise of the assistant of having just effortless hands-free access to this boundless intelligence out there on the web for like any query or, or like whim that you need answered. And then there's the utility aspect where they're actually doing some deep linking or working with third-party apps or just the apps that are on your phone to be like, let's just make this little thing easier for you to access. Yeah. That reminds me of when Apple introduced something called Shortcuts on iOS a few years ago. And it was this total oxymoron because you had to watch like like some seven-minute YouTube video to watch someone put together their shortcuts and then spend 45 minutes tailoring your shortcuts to be like... I think that's what they were called, right? The shortcuts? Yeah. yeah Jillian's nodding. Um, and, and now every so often something does pop up where it's like a shortcut to like the surf line, surf report, the exact one I'm looking for. And I'm like, oh, that's working. But like just designing it, like getting it to work, like initially setting it up was so complicated. And I was like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in some cases, Google may still have a leg up on Apple there when it comes to just making the assistant smarter for on-device stuff. Yeah. And speaking of shortcuts, there's also better support for quick phrases coming to Assistant. Yeah. Yeah. This is not entirely new, but now Google is saying that on something like the Nest Hub Max, you have to remember that Google like bought Nest and then they like rebranded all their smart displays, Nest Hub, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so that thing, that smart display, you can now, um, you can now, you don't even have to say, hey, G. You can basically program a phrase that you use frequently, such as turn on the bedroom lights or turn off, you know, turn on the timer or whatever it is, set the timer, to be the phrase itself. So when you say that, the assistant just knows. It wakes and then it processes it. So it's eliminating the hey G. And another way that they want to do that is have you to use your face to face scan you and voice match you. So you basically peer at the device, the smart display, for like a few seconds. It recognizes you and then you just launch into your your question or your query. You don't even have to say, hey, G anymore. So they're like taking away these little barriers that exist to just making it a more f- a more fluid virtual assistant. At the expense of our privacy. At the, yeah, yes. <laughs> Google will say that, um, Google will say that it's only going to be your face and voice that can use the, the look and see feature, um, look and talk, I mean, um, that a lot of the processing, if not all, is happening on device, which is a phrase we're hearing a lot these days in the world of AI. Um, there, There's a privacy shutter on the cameras that are on these devices. So you don't have to, it's the, the feature's totally opt-in. They'll say all of that, but ultimately there is this pathway. There's this you know, right now, Sissy Shao tells me that Google has no plans to um, use ads to monetize Google Voice Assistant, right? But ultimately, this is all part of Google search. This is like fundamentally what Google does. It's 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 foundational technology is search. And um, Google processes billions of search queries a day from us typing in the search box compared to hundreds of millions of voice queries per month, right? Which is small potatoes compared to the way we typically search. But but Google is an advertising company and that's how they make money. And so ultimately this is all like kind of feeding that engine of like get it's getting to know you, it's becoming personalized, it's becoming more convenient, but at the expense of us telling Google how we're living our lives. I am curious how this is gonna work because obviously this, this, um, this new feature where you just look at the Nest Hub Max, like, that only works because the Nest Hub Max has a camera and it is the only Nest Hub with a camera. And that's something that Google has 
routinely prided itself on and like not including a camera in some of their nest devices and it's sort of the opposite of what amazon does which is you know shove a camera into anything uh but basically it's just weird that you know this is such a big feature that requires the camera like i would have thought that they would have tried to figure out some kind of a solution where you didn't need to say the wake word uh, by not having to have a camera there, right? Like, it just seems like a weird uh, feature that seems a little backwards in some way. Um, but especially since, you know, earlier, like two months ago, I wrote a story about how they're trying to use radar to detect how you're walking around in your room with the mm -hmm. Nest Hub sort of detecting that you're walking past it and presenting information on the display when it when you realizes that your sort of gaze has shifted towards it. Um, so, you know, it's like one department is doing this sort of non-privacy focused way of uh, getting you to show you more information without invading your privacy. And like this other department is like, no, just stuff a camera and just use that. Yeah, it's, it's, it is interesting. I asked about that, like the evolution of first there were smart displays and they all had cameras and microphones and people freaked out. And then there was this move away from the cameras, right? Because Google like made the Nest Hub second generation without a camera, but added those radars. Um, and then other third party hardware makers like Lenovo that used the Google Assistant specifically designed privacy shutters so you could cover the camera. So then there was like this movement of like, no, we don't want cameras in our smart displays. And now we're going back to like, yeah, but this has a camera and what can it do? Oh, okay, great. It's going to make Google Assistant that much better. Um, I do think too, that if Google were to roll this feature out on the billions of other Android devices around the world with cameras, like smartphones right now, there would be such a huge backlash. Um, it'd be a privacy nightmare. So they have to start it, I think, with a product that has a relatively small footprint, and that um, most likely is the Nest Hub Max. Right. And maybe it's just kind of like, you know, back in the day where Google Glass was just so offensive to everyone because it had a camera on your face, and now that's kind of normal. Yes. I love your description of Amazon just throwing a camera and everything. Amazon's like, we just want to know when you want toilet paper. That's it. We yeah. see you're out of toilet paper. Need more toilet paper. <laughs> Here's a jumbo pack, 36 rolls coming your way, two days or less. Well, there was a whole mess of software announced this week at Google I.O. that we're not going to get to talk about because we're almost out of time. Uh, we did see a preview of Android 13, which is going to be arriving this fall. We learned a little bit more about it. There's going to be expanded support for RCS. There's going to be expanded support for Matter smart home standards. So you'll be able to instantly pair your phone with any device that works with Matter. Uh, there's going to be easier to cast videos to more televisions because Google is expanding support to multiple manufacturers. Uh, also, Google Wallet is returning. Uh, the application formerly known as Google Pay is going to turn back into Google Wallet. It's going to be able to hold all of your credit cards, your transit cards, your vaccine card, your Disney World Fast Pass, uh, and you're also going to be able to put your driver's license in it. So that should be interesting. The, ne the next time you get carded, just show the person a QR code. I, uh, totally I, don't, I don't think Google Pay is changing into Google Wallet, right? I think they're going to be now two separate apps. <laughs> of course they are. <laughs> I think that's the case. Of course they are, because why would we have it any differently? Well, Julian, tell us, what was the big software standout for you? Uh, well, there was a real tone, which is this 
feature that Google introduced last year, the Pixel 6, where it would do a better job of capturing people with different skin tones uh, in photos. And now they're sort of translating that into all of Google's products so that, uh, you know, even when you're searching in Google search to find foundation or makeup that uh, would really be ideal for your skin tone, those results will actually come through in Google image search, for example, uh, versus, you know, only seeing one type of skin tone when you search for it. Uh, you're just getting more of a diverse array of options as well as tools that you can use to choose between different skin tones as well. That's just one of the things that you think that that's already happening because it's 2022 and you're like, yeah, right? Like when I search for something, I should get a diverse set of opinions and images and results. But uh, no, that's that's only really being implemented now. Um, but I mean, I'm not surprised because, you know, Google sort of launched Realtone last year with the Pixel 6 and the camera uh, with its ability to more accurately capture uh, skin tones of people of color. Uh, and that's one of those things where you're like, hey, it's 2021. How is that not already a thing on every smartphone camera? Uh, mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's just it's just nice to be able to see that happening um, exactly how well it'll work across all of their Google products is obviously kind of hard to say, but um, it's just nice to know that someone is kind of thinking about stuff like that. I like the TLDR feature. <laughs> Google showed off this feature where when you open a document or you're joining a Google meet, it will basically give you an AI rendered like summary of the thing that you're about to read or the meeting you're about to enter uh, so that you can get caught up very quickly on what it is you're going to be talking about or reading about. Spoken like a true editor. <laughs> just the to, facts, I'll file a ridiculously long copy to you and you'll be like, Lauren, I'm just reading the TLDR box. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to utilize uh, Google's open APIs to, uh, to have its AI write a summary <laughs> of each story that you write from now on. If I were to do a very quick wired and tired about what I'm most excited about from today. Please. I would say the wired is that I'm... I'm most interested in this unified vision of software experiences for consumers from Google. The way Julian said earlier that like across tablets and watches and phones, we have we have that offering with Apple and Samsung, but not so much with Google. Let's see if that actually happens. Also, I have to say, I really liked Brian Rakowski's sweater and Sissy Shaw's blazer on stage today during the Google I.O. demo. Good job, folks. Um, I'm least excited about what you're kind of describing, Mike, this flattening or shortening of our texts and languages by Google's AI into these increasingly smaller boxes. Mm. Um, like, what does the world look like when all of our writing and all of our search results are just displayed in these, like, cards? Um, not sure I, I love that idea. And then uh, also tired, the fact that Google launches a zillion things and not all of them come to fruition. And expired, Google Pay. <laughs> Which is now Google Wallet. Google Wallet lives on. It is not. All right, let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll do our recommendations. Julian, you are our guest. You get to go first. What's your recommendation this week? Uh, I just moved to a new apartment in, in Brooklyn. And I would recommend, first, I would recommend getting movers because I have had a history of my parents just always instilling that you got to do it yourself. And my dad would stack the truck or his minivan with like everything. And so I've always done that for the past like seven, eight, nine years or whatever. But this year I was like, you know what? I'm just going to get movers and, and have them deal with it. And it definitely is a lifesaver. At the same time, I also recommend getting moving insurance because... <laughs> 
they completely destroyed my <laughs> marble coffee table. No, but uh, I should be okay. I think uh, I don't really. I've never really gotten insurance for a lot of these types of things, so that's going to be my first experience with that. Hoping that it'll be good news and I'll get a different coffee table or something. But <laughs> but still, uh, it's just uh, it's just one of those things. I think as you go on in life, getting the the pay the seven bucks for the insurance uh, and you'll be happy. You're happier if something goes wrong. Julian, have you considered a smart coffee table? No. <laughs> a giant touchscreen coffee table. I think Microsoft made one of those. Yeah, it was Surface. When Lenovo made one that was of those. The, sur the first yeah. Surface That's product. Right. Yeah. You say that three times was... fast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. They like... showed it off at D conference back in the day. Yeah, t 12 years ago, it was probably. A long time ago. It was called Microsoft Surface and yeah, it was a, an interactive coffee table. Uh huh. Yeah. So you had to plug it in. Yes. <laughs> And connected to the internet. Yeah. Also, you might not want to put your coffee on the coffee table. So please do not put drinks on the coffee table. It. Thank you. Um, also, Lord. we need to update its operating system at least once every three months. I've got the blue coffee table of death. <laughs> oh. Lauren, what's your recommendation? Oh, my recommendation is... Empire of Pain, a book by Patrick Radden Keefe. I've mentioned this a few times before on this show, but I typically uh, follow that with, but I don't want to recommend it until I finish it. Well, folks, I have finally finished it. Those of you who are friends with me on Goodreads, aka Mike, because I think you're my only friend on Goodreads, <laughs> uh, will notice that I checked it off as completed this week. It's an excellent book. It is about the Sackler family dynasty, the family that is responsible for, um, for marketing, selling, Oxycontin to the market, uh, which fueled the opioid crisis in the United States. It's um, a really sobering book, uh, deeply, deeply reported and really excellent. And so I recommend reading Empire of Pain by Patrick Radden Keefe. Nice. Mike, what's your recommendation this week? Uh, Slip-ons. Slip-ons. I'm done with laces. Just... In general, in life, what are you wearing now? I am. You, you have laces on. Right these now. are elastic laces that what? turn any laced shoe into slip-on shoes. What? Yeah. So uh, I ride a bicycle. I don't know if you knew this about me, but I ride a bicycle. <laughs> and laces are, you know, not great for bikes because they get caught in the chain and they get chain grease on them. And if you have a um, like a, a fixed gear bike or a uh, single speed bike or a coaster brake bike. Uh, a lace getting caught in the chain can bring you to a very sudden stop, which is unsafe. So I, you know, usually when I'm riding, don't wear shoes with laces. And also now that, you know, travel is an option. Once again, I've been traveling more and uh, slip on shoes work great for travel because, you know, you take your shoes on and off a lot when you go through airports and get on planes and things like that. Uh, and also just like I don't like bending over to tie my shoes anymore because I'm old and it hurts and slip ons you can put on while you're standing up. There are just a bazillion reasons why they are superior to shoes with laces. So I'm going hard into slip ons. I'm getting rid of all of my lace shoes except for my running shoes because I've not found good running shoes that slip on. So if you have recommendations for running shoes without laces, send them to me. Um, However, the shoes that I do have with laces, I'm replacing with those elastic laces. So it converts them into slip-ons. Just seems like you wouldn't want to go running in shoes without laces. Uh, they have to be really snug. Yeah, yeah. they have to be really snug. Yeah. They need ankle support. Yeah. It's also just part of the process, right? Yeah. Like lacing up. Which is going fine. Going out but for a run. In all other scenarios of my life, uh -huh. no more laces. What about Velcro? 
Velcro? What are you from 1986? Yeah. <laughs> do you What's also wrong with 1986? Do you also have like the kangaroos with like a little zipper pouch on the side of the shoe? <laughs> I don't remember those. <laughs> okay. I think you're just that much older than me, Mike. Julian, your team slip on, right? Yes, uh, mostly because I'm lazy. I'm six foot four. I have to bend down really far to like tie my laces. I'm lazy. I just want to slip something on. And I got to walk the dog like two times a day. I don't want to tie laces and things like that. So I am very much pro pro slip-ons. Yeah. Yeah, I went Vans, Sanuk, Olukai. There's a bunch of great ones out there to pick from. So. Um, oh, okay. So you're not 1986. You're 1994. No, no. This is thoroughly 20. 22. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm fully up to date on my fashion choices. Thank you, Lauren. <laughs> I wear slip-ons when I take the garbage out. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> You're halfway there. <laughs> All right. Well, that is our show. Julian, thank you, as always, for joining us in Talking Google. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. It was, this was fun. Thanks, Julian. That was super fun. And thank you all for listening. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes. This show is produced by Boone Ashworth. We will be back next week. So until then, goodbye. Hi, everyone. Michael from Gadget Lab here. I want to tell you about our friends over at The Big Take Podcast from Bloomberg News. Each weekday, they bring you one important story from their global newsroom like how AI will upend your life or why China's targeting the US dollar and maybe how Joe Biden plans to take on Donald Trump. Oh boy. Check out The Big Take, a daily podcast from Bloomberg, wherever you listen.